Good morning, everybody. That sounds louder than I thought. Thank you. I apologize for not being Barry, and I appreciate all y'all for being willing to just... <laughs> it's funny that you two are the ones that said that. <laughs> uh, Luke chapter 12. I have been admonished by Barry to go quickly to get through this entire chapter. Ironic as well, you know. And then I realized that Luke 12 is a big old chapter. So, as long as we approach this with the spirit of giving it our best stab, we'll have a good, good, good time for everyone. So for those who are visiting, I see some new faces here. Uh, if you're visiting, we're approaching the book of Luke from the perspective of going through it with someone who's never done that before, whose idea of sharing the gospel, reading through the scriptures. And when you do that, um, you will notice a lot of things that stand out as odd, don't make sense, and deserve some explanation. And so one of the things that we're doing is noticing those things and discussing them in class. How would we handle those things in those discussions? And so as we go through this text, we're looking at it from the perspective of fresh eyes, which is a good idea to do all the time. But that's the specific purpose of this class today. Um, and if you don't mind, Adam, can you say a quick prayer for us sure. before we get started? Thanks. Thank you. All right, so in Luke chapter 12, I'm going to read some section by section a little bit to get us in the right context, but can anybody explain what we're coming off the tail end of in chapter 11? Anybody remember that? There were some very choice words shared towards the Pharisees and scribes. How did that conversation go? Yeah. 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 And that was uh, probably some of the stronger words so far that I think we've seen Jesus share towards the religious and faithful leaders at the time. Um, Let's start off here in Luke 12. I'm going to go ahead and read verses 1 through 12, and then we'll come back and try to tackle some of this first section here. So we're in the scene where there's a large mass of people that have assembled to hear Jesus speak. He's been speaking for a while now, and again, he just got off the tail end of, of letting the Pharisees have it and accusing them and confirming some of the things that have done in the past, not just them currently in the culture of Christian, or excuse me, of the Jewish religion at the time then, but also bringing all the way back to Old Testament times of the prophets and such as well. So I'm going to read chapter 12, verses 1 through 12. It says, In the meantime, when so many thousands of people had gathered together that they were trampling one another, he began to say to his disciples first, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and whatever you have whispered in private rooms 
shall be proclaimed from the housetops. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who can kill the body, and after that have nothing more they can do to you. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has the authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even the hairs on your head are all numbered. Fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows. And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man will also acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God, and everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But the one who blasphemes against the Son of Man, or against the Holy Spirit, will not be forgiven. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself, or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. One of the things I want to remind us to do as we go through this chapter is to continue kind of going back to the context of where, we're, where we just came off of. Because it, what it seems like as we read through it, with your Bible having it divided up into sections like it is, is that they're changing subjects. But you're really not. So many times when I was studying through this, it's like, well, that's exactly the point he was making back then. And if they had been paying attention back then, then this wouldn't have happened. And so, let's go back then, after reading those first 12 verses, and read verses 1 through 3. In the meantime, when so many thousands of people had gathered together, they were trampling one another. He began to say to his disciples, first, beware the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed, or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark will be heard in the light. Whatever you have whispered in private rooms will be proclaimed on the housetop. What stands out to you is odd. If you're reading this for the first time, what stands out to you? He's speaking to his disciples directly here. So the idea is there's this large mass of people that's becoming more riotous. Apparently they were so, so large that we're trampling on each other. Literally thousands of people listed in verse 1. And he's speaking directly to his disciples with this first, this first uh, part here. So what stands out? Or what would be a question we would expect to hear? Yeah, and that's going to set the tone for almost the rest of this entire chapter. Because what's odd about it is if you're, here, if you're one of the disciples and Jesus just got through tearing apart the Pharisees and the scribes and the lawyers, you would kind of say, wait, why did Jesus just warn us against them? They're the authorities. They're the ones who make the laws. They're the ones we're literally supposed to be obeying or face, this, or face punishment because they, they make the laws. So that's what stood out if I'm, to me if I'm looking at that with what you just said. And Jesus says, well, that's hypocrisy. And that's why. It's why we need to be aware of them. And so just to do a quick little recap of the things he just said about the Pharisees, which imagine you're hearing this from somebody who is subject to the rule of the Pharisees. In verse, uh, chapter 11 and verse 39, he says, you look good on the outside. I'm paraphrasing these. He says, you, they look good on the outside, but are full of greed and wickedness. Verse 42, they say, they neglect the justice that they create. 
and they neglect the love of God, which is what they're supposed to uphold. In verse 46, they pass heavy burdens on people, but do not hold themselves to that same standard, which is the hypocrisy Josh is just speaking to. In 47, it says they, going back to the Old Testament, and maybe more recently, they killed the prophets and were complicit with their murder. In 50, he says the blood of the prophets will be required of their generation. In 52, he says they prevented people from gaining knowledge. The implication is that it was, that was done in an attempt to maintain power. So if you're hearing that for the first time, and these are your authorities, you're probably thinking some things right now. Either Jesus is what? What are you thinking about Jesus, the man who's speaking right now? That's one way you could look. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, he's either there's either something very special about this person, or he's insane, or he's some form of rebel, some form of some form of insane person, and that's got to be hard to swallow. One of the things that we also consider with the Pharisees going to that is remembering their position. It is one of power. It is one of authority. It is one of, I'm assuming, would be financial stature as well. So they probably have a different appearance. They probably have different possessions. They probably have different incomes, whatever. The authority, I'm sure, has some form of financial implication to their lifestyle, which is going to be a theme that we're going to come upon later. He knows. Christ knows how this power that you refer to, the power of being the speaker and people listening to you, can corrupt you because of the way it's corrupted them. So he's warning them against that because he says, even though you might act this way, it's not going to be covered up. You're, you're, it's going to be known how you actually are reacting or doing Exactly. And that is what I think the lesson for the disciples was, is that the Pharisees, though they are in positions of authority, should not be the object of their emulation. Um, I went back to Malachi chapter 1. And I'll flip back and read that real quick. The implication of here is that God wants your heart. The things that you do in secret, it's not your outward appearance. It's not the things that you come across as. It's not the power that you possess or what you're able to do or people. God wants your heart, which is clearly the indictment against the Pharisees here, is that there is no heart. And so it should be a fairly referable passage for a lot of us. Malachi chapter 1 verse 10 refers to, oh, that... Let me see. Yeah. Oh, that there were among you who would shut the doors of the temple, that you might not kindle a fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts. I will not accept any offering from your hand. And then verse 13, they say, Oh, what a burden this is, and you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame and sick, and you bring that as an offering. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? The idea is, the heart's not been in it. That's been the implication and the indictment against the Jews for a very, very, very long time. And now the Pharisees are essentially bearing that almost as a badge of honor because of the position that they have. Uh, there's, there's one of the things that jumps out in the first three verses here is uh, just influence, being aware of your influences. Mm -hmm. And in Jesus' training, 
they were to be aware of the influence that they would have on the prosecutor. So just being aware of the responsibility that you have to be on guard. You know, I would be intimidated by thousands and thousands of people after just being, the verses before said that they were waiting to catch him saying something. Right. And whatever he says in front of these thousands, he's going to get back to the people that want to get it. And, the, and what he whispers to his followers about it, you know, is it kind of a warning saying, you know, you, we're told to be bold. But there might come a time that being bold will get us in trouble. Mm -hmm. is, is, is the message kind of, you know, you just got to say it anyway. Yeah. I, mean, I, I don't know how it relates to the great number and the whispering that his followers. It, it, I would be so intimidated. Well, that's a great segue into the next section, actually, because that's essentially what I see like he's saying. Because he's telling them to not follow to not follow the authorities, essentially, in this case, to be careful of them, to be mindful of them, to watch what they're saying. And obviously, since they are the authorities, and it is an intimidating thing to ask, there may be implications of doing such things, which is where verse 4 starts off, where it says, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who can kill the body, and after that have nothing more they can do, but I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And, it, and not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even the hairs in your head are all numbered. Fear not, for you are of more value than many sparrows. So, riff on that for a second. He's basically saying the same thing. It's like, this might have some physical implications for you. What are you to do about it? What's that? Trust God, have no fear. Trust God, that, that's going to be a continued theme as well. Someone said something over here. Fear God, not man. Yeah. This is the source of who you fear. Here is the authority you should be considering. Not the one that is doing everything that has been laid out in chapter 11 that the Pharisees have done such a good job of doing over the last several centuries, I guess. So one of the questions that I would jump, jump out to me would say, if I'm reading this for the first time, it said, why? It says, do not fear those who can kill the body. Basically saying the Pharisees' authority can only do so much to you. Which is an intimidating thing. Because death is Yeah. Yeah. And again, if I'm one of the disciples, or if I'm somebody who's been subject to the Pharisees this entire time, thinking they're the ones who I'm supposed to appeal to, what am I thinking about Jesus at this point? Like, yeah, there may be some kind of indecision going along with this, and Jesus is trying to go back, and Jesus, what Jesus is doing is reinforcing that and reinforcing it as time goes on, but it's also this idea of he's doubling down. He didn't just say to watch what they're saying. He's saying something might happen about that. You need to make sure you're appealing to the right source of authority, even if something does go down that can harm your physical body. Fear the person that can destroy your soul, not the people that might say you can't preach that. 
Yeah. You can't teach that. And just the, the command, be not afraid, or don't fear, uh, is the most frequently given command in the Bible. Mm. And when it goes directly into the next section of, you've got to acknowledge me, and if you deny me, then I'll deny you. Uh, just thinking ahead, what's going to happen when Peter denies Jesus in this gospel, that after he denies him the third time, the rift repose, and Jesus comes and looks at him. Uh, and just that moment of I just didn't acknowledge him like he's talking about here. Instead, he was falling into the fear of man, and uh, and Peter goes away and weeps bitterly because of that. Yeah, that is that is something not to be underestimated. There. Um. Yeah, that's a, it's a sobering thought to think that we've never really been subject to any kind of persecution or have that decision put in front of us to think, yeah, that's going to be me. So, let's not be so bold to make that assumption. When just the night before, Peter says, I'm going to be willing to die with you. In fact, when a huge mob far outnumbers him, Peter's the one that takes out his sword and starts swinging, like... He's not afraid at that moment, but yeah. his downfall comes just hours later. Yeah. And there is that idea of that, that fear that goes along with it, which, which is really what he's addressing in this. And so I, I went to First John 4. If you flip over there real quick, I have this underlined in my Bible in a color red because the color red are scriptures that are supposed to give me uh, confidence. 1 John 4, verse 17 says, By this love is perfected with us, that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because he is also, because he is also, because as he, excuse me, because as he is, also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has nothing to do with punishment, and whoever fears has never been perfected in love. And I think that's, that's a way that you can look at what Jesus is trying to say here. Is that God wants your heart. That's what he's always wanted. In Malachi, he said, I'd rather you just shut the doors to the temple. I want your heart. I want you to do this for the right reasons. I don't want you to follow me because the Pharisees tell you to, and I don't want you to follow the Pharisees regardless of what they say, even if they're wrong. I want, you to, I want your heart. I want you. And that's that aspect of love that is why Jesus is so incredibly, incredibly valuable in his teaching is because that aspect of love is what's going to drive out the fear and give us that confidence to go before these, whether that's judgment, before the authorities, before whatever. It's like we stand by what is true because of the love that has been perfected in us. It drives out the fear. We know that on a, on a family level, a familial level, yeah. that's where the term there comes from. If something, we love that child so much that that child can be in fear and helping that child can put, or can be in danger and helping that child can put us in danger. The fear disappears. Yeah. You don't even think of it. There's no, let me weigh this out and should I do this or should I do that? You just jump in because the love is there. Yeah. And that's just a small microcosm of what this is saying. That's a phenomenal way of phrasing that. It's almost like there's no questioning. 
You know, like if something were to come between me and my daughter, me and my wife, me and my future son, Lord willing, it's like there's no questioning in regards to what's, what's, what's going to happen. There is no fear there because the love drives out, drives out that fear. That's a wonderful point. Thank you, Linda. Yes. Yeah, I was going to say, in this whole section, I think Jesus is inviting the disciples to look a little closer and see uh, who has the real power, look past the surface of things, and see who's really in control. Uh, the Pharisees seem to be very righteous and holy on the outside, but Jesus says what they've hidden in their heart, the leaven on the inside, uh, is not as holy and righteous. Right? Yeah. That's the problem. That's what creates the hypocrisy. The authorities and powers look like they're in control, but their control only goes to the point of, of killing you, right? They, they have no control over you spiritually. In a minute, he's going to talk about the rich fool, right? The rich in this world look like they have it all together, look like they have it made, but they don't know anything about where real spiritual riches lie. So looking past the physical, the artificial, and towards real to God has been sold for us. That's kind of the, the main thrust of this whole section. Yeah. I could not agree more. And the idea of just that outward appearance, the vanity that's involved in that, and how it's never been what God has been pursuing in the first place anyway. So be careful of that. Yeah, John. And one aspect, I mean, he's writing this to Theophilus, who does not have the background that these Jews do. So he's also explaining to God that That would be so so counter to what so many people in the Gentiles would understand about the gods. Yeah, this would have been it's a, a very, I mean, he hits it over and over and over again throughout the book that God cares about each individual person. God is aware and cognizant and cares, deeply loves each person. So I think this would have struck him differently than the Jews necessarily because they're more accustomed to that. Yeah, in fact, to, not to skip ahead, but I just I don't know if I could hit this verse enough. In verse 32 of chapter 12, again, he's going through these really deep and heavy concepts. And this wonderful little phrase in here says, 32, it says, Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. You know, that's a good point. What's that? That's Luke 12. That's verse 32. That's just a little farther down. We haven't got there yet. Chip. Yeah, I can't think that God's view of what he wants to accomplish with mankind is reconciliation. His, his extension of love, what he offers to us is inclusion. He wants to include us in his kingdom. He wants to include us in eternity. Um, the Pharisees is a, is a philosophy of exclusion. Yeah. So they set up all these rules. You don't tithe, you admit, you cumin, and then you're excluded. And so, and so Jesus' point here really is don't fear this um, false religion of exclusion. Um, realize that the love of God is a love that wants the inclusion. And he bases that inclusion on, do you love me? Do you show mercy to other people like I'm showing to you? Yeah. Do you forgive like I forgive? Um, these Pharisees are the total opposite. They're judgmental. They're exclusionary. Um, that God's love is the opposite of being forgiving and inclusive. And that's why I said, don't fear 
what they can do to you. And, and if, you know, I think that's a real fear, you know, not to get on a political track, but, but what happens in our society today, this cancel culture that we have, you don't comply with certain norms and society wants us to think. You're canceled. You're excluded. And there's a real fear of people saying, "Wow, I don't want to be, um, you know, not someone who's not included yeah. with my friends, yeah. or with my business associates." And so, it's a, it's, it is a real fear even today yeah. um, to not want to, to be left out. I guess is the way to say that. Yeah. God is saying, or Jesus is saying here. Don't be afraid of that. Fear God. Yeah, again, this, that's a very real point, and I appreciate that, how strong a stance that Barry has referenced some of these things. It's, someday they may come for the truth. They can't have it. That we will stand resolved. And your idea of the aspect of that being fear, it's just something we're spoiled and that we might have never had that experience before. So we need to be on guard, knowing that it could mean something for this physical life. But that, that punishment, that authority, whatever, only goes so far. And if we have a perfect love of Jesus who was perfect for us, then we really don't have anything to fear. So thank you, Chip. Yeah, Chad. Commenting on what uh, Johnson moment ago, we know that God is love, and God loves all of us, all of mankind. But to me, especially in this text, it's a demonstration of the true love of God that He even loves the Pharisees. We forget that. It's so easy for us to shoot them and dissect and all the strips of the false religion and the laws that they put on man, which is true. But I think God loved them too. We know what he did. That's why he corrected them. And that's why he had hope for them to change their heart. Yeah. So God loves people that we can't imagine loving, yeah. which is us. Are we really different than the Christians? That's the question of the hour. I think we can view chapter 11 as kind of... A those are some warning signs for us. Do we find ourselves in these situations? Are we limiting someone's exposure to knowledge? Are we placing too heavy burdens on people that are unnecessary and more challenging to bear? Like, they can give us some insight into, hey, we're not immune to that either. But the overriding principle with all of this is God just wants your heart. He always has. That's all he's ever wanted is the sincerity of your belief, belief and love. And to not worry about whether it's the possessions or the power or the punishments or penalties. He just wants your heart. He just wants your heart. And he makes some value equivalencies here between the sparrows, which I think are self-explanatory. Apparently a sparrow was a really cheap bird back then, but he's very cognizant of them. So how much more valuable do you think we are to them? So let's go ahead and move on to the next section here. I got some pretty good chuckles out of this section reading through it. So starting in verse 13, remember the scenario Thousands of people, crowds of people literally trampling each other. And somebody, you can imagine, worked his way through the crowd while Jesus is speaking to get one chance to talk to Jesus, to talk to this guy who's caused such a, such a scene, who either is, a, at this point, 
either a prophet, an insane person, the son of God, whatever. He, he's something. And so you get one chance. Fight your way through this riotous crowd to get to where he's speaking. And what does this guy ask in verse 13? He says, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. We can give him the benefit of the doubt. Maybe there was too much crowd noise going on to hear everything Jesus just said. But I thought that was interesting. You finally get a chance to bring something before Jesus, and that's what you're going for. Hey, tell my brother to split up the inheritance with me. And Jesus' response is great, because Jesus is teacher. He's making judgment calls about things that are going on today, and he said, man, who made me a judge and arbitrator over you? And then immediately flips the same conversation over to a different perspective of looking at the situation. And so what's something that you would read, though? Like, if you were reading this for the first time, like, what's something you would think? I thought Jesus was a judge. <laughs> exactly, yeah. And this is an inheritance. Now, I don't know about the Galilean probate process and if they had a trust set up or anything and he's putting up a deal, but, like, you'd think this is something you could easily judge over, Solomon style, you know, where it's like, hey, here's the situation, cut it in half, and there you go. But Jesus takes this opportunity to continue preaching about the same thing that he'd just been saying, but in a little bit more stern sense of the idea of covetousness, and he uses the parable of the rich fool. So I'm going to read that real quick. Verse 15, he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he was thoughtful. And, and he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and goods. Okay, stop. What's wrong with this? Anything? What's that? There's a lot of eyes. Yeah, he's thinking about him. He's talking to himself at this point. Yeah, and so... A lot of eyes going on in here. Yeah, there's no God in there. Hasn't, hasn't mentioned giving thanks, giving praise, giving things. What else? But it's, it's, it's good for us to plan for the future. Yeah. He had a gangbusters year. You know, it's like his crops were plentiful and so much so that he couldn't store it all. And so you could go off of what's not said and you could say, well, he could have said, I have all this extra that I can give to people who need it. And that it's, he went immediately to this idea of self on there. But so far, he just had a great year. And he's got to store this somewhere. It is appropriate to save for the future. It is appropriate to do these things. But where it changes is when it goes into uh, verse, let me see, verse 19. I love the self-talk here. And he said, I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. So what's the issue here? Yeah. He's putting that trust in his wealth, and what, what's he seeking? He's in this life. Yeah, it's like, hey, this is my chance. This is my chance to kick back, relax, 
strike that early retirement check. My pension's stored up inside my big old barn that I just built, and I can, I can cruise from here on out. What else stands out in this, in the greater context of everything we've just been talking about? person at the beginning of the section the benefit of the doubt. Like, let's just assume, I mean, to be fair, it is an inheritance. Let's say he's fully entitled to whatever his portion is, and his brother is the one that's in the wrong here, that's withholding his portion or putting up a fight or something like that. And the issue is that mentality. It's that mentality of your relationship with Jesus has nothing to do with your possessions, your physical stature, which is what you were just saying. about. Let's, let's debunk that really quickly just so everyone's on the same page. Jesus basically says, I'm not here to judge over your physical possessions. I want your heart. I want you to love me because I first love you. That's what he's here for. And you imagine some kind of tongue-in-cheekness with the response a little bit, the way he says it, because you can't imagine. It's like you clearly put in some effort to get to bring this one thing before Jesus. Jesus is used to getting interrupted by this point. Last, in, I think it was chapter 11, the, a woman busts out in the middle of his, of his lesson, of his sermon, saying, blessed is the womb that bore you. And Jesus turns it over and says, you know, no, blessed is the one who gives eternity. And so in this time, he's getting interrupted. And so it's with something that's completely opposite of what he, the message he's trying to relay. Both of those things. So, this is a way of redirecting to what it 
this mentality shift. It's a full mentality shift, even from what he was just saying before, what he was just saying before about um, the way we ought to view the authority of the Pharisees and to be mindful of what they're saying. Now to the covetousness, the physical nature is to protect your heart from those things. It's a very strong mentality shift. Thank you for that. Refocuses that back to the exact point that he's talking about. So the don't come like a curveball to him, and he has to pause for a second. He can instantly rephrase the entire problem back to the spiritual concept. Yeah, that's a good point. All right, two. Yeah, I was just going to say I really like the way she put that because what are what were they expecting when Christ came? His his response redirects that thought of. This isn't about what you'll need to prepare for when I come. Your soul is what needs to be prepared when I come. Yeah. So yeah, that's going to be the back half of this chapter. That that literal thing. Yeah. The Jews of the Gentiles in this case, was particularly any Jews in this audience, were certainly still hoping, even his bosses were hoping that he was coming to set up a physical kingdom. Yeah. That they might need this, even even if they were thinking in, in a in a in a uh, a charitable way of saying, I can at least give it to your kingdom. Sure. Your kingdom, yeah. Uh, if I have control of it. Yeah. So even if that was a good thought, a noble thought, yeah. it wasn't what it was about. Which is also really both of y'all great points because again, like John mentioned before, this letter is being written to Theophilus and keeping in mind the greater economic concept of what's going on with Rome at the time, being over them. I'm sure that's a big part of what they're looking for. So this also may be this kind of figuring out what is going on with this Jesus guy because they may be expecting this worldly kingdom to deliver them from the oppression of Rome and and the the way that they rule over them, the taxation implications of that. So they may be looking for a way out and Jesus is over here saying not only are we supposed to think twice about the Pharisees, but you mean take my life? I mean, I, don't have to, I shouldn't be worried about my physical possessions, even if it's something like inheritance, which I'm technically entitled to. The irony of this is that if they follow Jesus' spiritual teachings, there's no need for him to be a judge or arbiter. It, it, it's a good point because his teachings say, no, you're not going to argue over this kind of stuff. You know, if a man takes your coat, give him your cloak also. Right. He's, he's addressed right. those things in Matthew. And so, to me, that's really interesting because the whole issue is resolved just by following Jesus. Yeah, that's a great point. That's a great point. Yeah. It seems to be, over and over, he's emphasizing and trying to take people's focus off this line. Beginning of the chapter, he talks about, you know, when you die, mm-hmm. be afraid of who can catch you to hell. And then he talks about your actions before men. It's right up to the point when you die that he talks about what your, your decision will be. Here, the rich young ruler died. And it didn't matter what he did in his life. It was the judgment at the point when he died. Yeah. Yeah. So, it over and over emphasizes the life after his life. Which is a great transition into the next section. That's exactly what he's talking about. So, pick it up in, in verse 22. He said, 
carry on from that. And he said to his disciples, therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. This is different from, hey, I'm supposed to inherit this chunk of money and I'm not getting it. Now we're getting a little bit more pragmatic. It's a lot more of this food and clothes, basic essentials. Verse 23, for life is more than food, the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens, they neither soar nor reap, they neither have storehouse nor barn, yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, will add a single hour to his span of life? If then you are not able to do as small things as that, why are you anxious about rest? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow, they neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows what, that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. So if you're reading this for the first time, if you're Theophilus, if you're someone who's never heard teaching from the Bible, what are you thinking if we read that section right there? Yeah, so, so you're saying practical stuff doesn't matter, right? Well, somebody said something else. Thank you. I don't know. Yeah, it's gonna take care of our needs. Maybe this just tells you where my heart's at. I read this through. My first thought was, I can totally see reading this with no concept. Like, wait, wait, why am I still suffering? It sure doesn't feel. I sure don't feel taken care of a lot of times. You know, things uh, have definitely had some worse days. Obviously, some people have had worse than me, but I don't always feel so taken care of sometimes. And you got to keep going back to this whole context of always, he's, this is already good, gracious. <laughs> this is... Yeah, it's like, what, it's like what, what, are you sorry? There is something I can get out of this. You know, because it doesn't seem all peaches and cream all the time. The people of Thessalonica started doing that. When they received the gospel, Paul had to write Second Thessalonians. And, you know, this is not the time to be doing jobs and, and thinking that all this is going to be taken care of because the Lord is coming, like, yeah. soon. Yeah. He goes on to say, of course, without going to that text, he is going to come. Yeah. He's going to come who no one expected. But yeah. this is not the time. And, and he's talking. And there he says, the person is not willing to command, not willing to work, then neither shall he be. Yeah. So the principle he lays out in Thessalonians is no, this is not the time to just quit your jobs and, and, and pretend like you have no responsibilities. Yeah. You still have responsibilities. If nothing else, to each other. Right. Yeah. The, the way that I thought about it was define need. We have a tough time with that. I have a tough time with that. Define need. The idea of food and clothing. That's also referenced later in the New Testament as well. I forget where. It's like with food and clothing, you should be satisfied. You should be content. But I think in verse 32, he wraps it up with that same thought as before. It says, fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. 
sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourself with money bags that don't grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches, no moth destroys. From where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Define it need. God will happily give you the things you need to give you the kingdom. Don't be concerned with the things of this world. Thank you all for your comments. Made this made this a lot better for me. So thank you very much.